It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think the media has a way of wanting to haphazardly display black pain, black rage, and they do it in a way that does not explore any of the context that lies behind it. You begin to really see that no one really cares about us. No one really cares about telling our story. No one really cares about humanizing us. Katrina. Ferguson. Oak Creek. In America, a local tragedy can spark a national conversation. But what happens after the national news cycle moves on? I'm Ziba Blay, and this is I'm Still Here, a HuffPost podcast. This is one of the worst race-based, religious-based, ethnic-based hate attacks that happened in 50 years by a known affiliated white supremacist. Ferguson was only the beginning. This is the work right here. They were never going to let us win. So they find themselves out here in the street. And then they don't know how to deal with their circumstance. When a grand jury decided not to indict Darren Wilson for shooting and killing 18-year-old Michael Brown, protests erupted in Ferguson, training the eye of the national news on a once rather anonymous suburb of St. Louis. Of course, once the cameras left, it didn't mean that the story was over. With the deaths of Black people like Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, and Kiwi Herring since the Ferguson protests three years ago, I wanted to go back to where the movement started, so I traveled to Missouri. First, I visited the Ferguson Community Empowerment Center, a space co-created by the Urban League of St. Louis to provide programs and aid for disenfranchised Black people in the area. There's a famous photo, you might have seen it, of a quick-trip gas station burning to the ground during the Ferguson protests. Well, the community center was literally built over the ashes of that site. I went there to speak with Michael McMillan, the president and CEO of the Urban League of Metropolitan St. Louis, and ask if he's seen any change. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that image of the quick trip burning, because that is probably what, like one of the most, you know, I used to use the word iconic, but iconic images of what happened in Ferguson. But there are some people who would argue that the images of the burning buildings and the looting and the anger and the resentment sort of kind of sort of took over the story and that things like what you're doing like the positivity that your organization is doing kind of wasn't as interesting as the rage how do you feel about this idea that the onus is on the community to you know fix itself or rather the um the people who were acting out or showing their rage or their resentment, there was a problem with them and not the system that created that anger and resentment. Am I making sense? Well, I think that ultimately after you had the investigation by the Department of Justice that actually proved all of these accusations and came up with the consent decree that there have been violations of the law and people's civil rights and human rights have been violated. I think that vindicated all of that rage and anger and disgust and having that documentation proves that, you know, a liar will figure, but the figures don't lie. And so once you have that documentation and those numbers, in addition to the annual numbers that we get from the attorney general's office in the state of Missouri about racial profiling with police stops all over the state, 
that lets you know that people are not making these things up. These are real people that are going through these experiences, and after decades of abuse, there has been a climate of mistrust, and we have to do demonstrable things to change that, because otherwise you do have this very horrible relationship between the community and the police, and it shouldn't be that way because protect and serve is something that any one of us may need at any moment, and there needs to be faith and confidence and trust in the governmental institutions that we are all forced to pay into by law via our taxes. So no one wants to be forced to pay into a system that they do not trust and don't have faith in that will be equal and fair to them. You mentioned earlier how the community has changed so much since what happened in 2014. Could you talk a little bit about you know, your impression of what the community like was before, how it's changed, and what your hopes are for the future. I think what Ferguson did more than anything was expose the problems in North County and to some degree in North City, but really in the black community as a whole, to a broader audience that people may have heard but had not paid that much attention to. And I think that all of the stories in the media and the documented abuses from the police and the court systems really took people that otherwise would have almost never believed that something like that could have happened in their city. It gave them the documented evidence that these abuses were taking place. And the media played a key role in exposing all of these injustices and getting that information out, like we discussed about the Department of Justice and the Missouri Attorney General's report on racial profiling every year, in a way that you cannot ignore them anymore. You can't ignore them anymore, and you can't pretend they are not there and just brush it over. So. I think it was a wake-up call to the region, to some of our government leaders, some of our not-for-profit leaders, our corporate leaders, that more resources need to be given to try to fix these problems, that there need to be some adjustments and changes in public policy, et cetera. This three-year point is a time where we can reflect on what has evolved, but again, these problems will not just have gone away in three years. So we have to continue to be vigilant about it because if we don't and we go back to business as usual, we'll end up right in this same exact spot. Mm -hmm. And as you know, right now, we're on the verge of another major verdict that the region is waiting to see and how the response will be to that and what will transpire afterwards depending on what that is. So we have come a way and we have a long way to go but we need to be conscious cognizant and deliberate about staying the course two weeks after i left missouri another verdict dropped this was for the case of anthony lamar smith an unarmed 24 year old black man who was shot and killed by a st louis cop thomas stockley after a high-speed chase in 2011. Stockley, who court documents allege declared he was going to kill this motherfucker, was found not guilty. Protests erupted in St. Louis. Again. History was repeating itself. Again. So I sat down with my colleague Lily Workna to work through the deja vu. Lily, you actually came to HuffPost when everything with Ferguson was going down and, and covered it right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. What was that like? It was intense, um, intense to see that play out. And it was challenging because being a black journalist, I have to tell this story. But being a black woman, I also feel the story. Mm-hmm. And I can't say that's died down in the last three years that I've been here. Yeah. I've seen the same story repeat itself over and over again and take the lives of countless black men and women. You know, that sort of erases our humanity. I don't want to say it's become routine, but now, you know, there's still so much work that needs to be done. Sometimes it can feel a little discouraging, right? Mm -hmm, Because mm -hmm. it's like so many Mm -hmm, young mm -hmm. men and women have Mm -hmm. died and we report and we try to give context to their lives and to their humanity. 
And with Anthony Lamar Smith, I, I was thinking uh, recently about a clip I saw from the protests, mm-hmm. not of protesters, mm-hmm. but actually of police officers. Mm-hmm. And these officers were um, chanting whose streets, our streets, during this protest, which was Mm. crazy to me because they're taking a phrase that has been used by organizers and activists to, like, reassert our humanity and our right to exist in the world, and they're using it to, like, play us, basically. (laughs) It really begs the question, then, you know, how far have we actually come? Right. No, that's a fair question. It's sort of the age-old question, right? The question that we sort of ask ourselves every time events like this happen because it sort of, you know, serves as a reality check. These are things that 2017 we're still fighting for. Mm -hmm. Like, it shows you how deep this divide is, right? I mean, it's a lot when you think about the overall, you know, recent history, really recent history that black folks have had to go through. If you're comparing three years ago to now, the entire political climate is a little different, right? Right. Just a little bit. (laughs) And so you have men like Trump in power, uh, men like Jeff Sessions in power, um, men like Steve Bannon, who was in power, who are creating narratives and messages and sending racist dog whistles that undermine black lives, that undermine the lives of people of color in this country. I mean, we saw this plainly play out with Charlottesville, right? Mm -hmm. We saw Trump. I mean, we saw him blaming the violence on both sides, right? Right. It's so interesting how, like, who gets to protest and Mm -hmm. where they get to protest and how they get to protest. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. We see this with Take a Knee, right? Yeah. Colin. Black athletes, right, who are the majority and dominate these sports, Mm -hmm. basketball and and football, speaking out and and fighting for equality and racial justice specifically. I mean, we can't lose sight that this is what the NFL protests were all about. And yet people spinning this into an argument about Trump and spinning this into an argument about the flag when this goes much deeper than that. Um, And people failing to see what these protests are about, what black people are fighting for, like respect and survival. Mm -hmm. It's disheartening. Yeah. I mean, I think in any case, when black people stand up for themselves, we're often viewed as agitators, right? Yeah. But Lily... Before I left for Missouri, I had a chance to speak with the filmmakers behind Who Streets, a documentary about the Ferguson uprising. And I asked them that same question. Just how far have we come? Here's what Damon Davis, the film's co-director and producer, had to say. They both improved, but in, in some ways they've gotten very, very much worse. Mm-hmm. Like, we were like, like there are people that I, I knew, both of us uh, knew, that are dead now, that are dead. and it, and it's very hard to think that it, that um, that it had nothing to do with the stance that that, that these people took out there in Ferguson. People just locked away for um, for, for for lack of a better word, standing up to authority mm-hmm. and, and being made examples of. And and on top of that, like like uh, like archaic voter registration laws are coming into play. Taxes are being taken specifically to buy more. Uh, to fund fund the police more instead of like trying to like like maybe they shouldn't have all of those those weapons and be militarized to that level. You know what I mean? It was, it was almost a direct response to us standing up to be to be pushed on harder, mm-hmm. and 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 that reaches further than just Fer- the municipality yeah. of Ferguson, uh, St. Louis in general. But also at the same time, I've never seen so many people be radicalized in one moment like that, and I haven't seen people take. Um, just just divest too from that system, and just and just stop waiting for them to come around, and stop waiting for them to to be. We love you guys, you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. stop waiting for them to care about you. It's a lot of people like setting up programs where they feeding kids, giving them books. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like like after school programs, and and a focus on children. Like I like like I feel is vital, and I and I'm seeing people do that. I'm also seeing black people. Go into public office. You know, it's just a, it's just a multi pronged thing. But the radicalization that happened in in Ferguson is uh, something that I I have never seen in my life, and I may never see an event like that again while I'm alive. So that is something that's very beautiful is seeing um, young people, uh, people my age and younger, just like really get involved in their own community and mm-hmm. and 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 stop even stop even expecting them to help us out. Right. You know what I mean. One of those young people is Brittany Farrell. She's a co-founder of Millennial Activists United, a collective created by queer black women after the killing of Michael Brown. 
She's featured in Who Streets, and I remember being so drawn to her story in the film. The film's director and producer, Sabah Folayan, told me about how they came to know Brittany. I remember one of the earliest nights being out of Ferguson and seeing Brittany, um, you know, out there in the community in the streets and seeing how much energy she had and how much courage that she inspired in people. And I remember one of the first questions I asked her was, you know, as a woman, how do you find, you know, your place in the movement as a woman or something? And she told me, you know, you don't wait for anyone to give you a place. You take your place. Mm -hmm. And I remember I got chills from her just telling me that in that moment. And it was such a message from my own life, um, but that was really her attitude. And so from really early on, it became sort of a no-brainer to try to get to know Brittany and the work she was doing. And then we, when we did meet Kenna, we did see how she was raising her daughter. Um, it had personal implications for me growing up with a single mom who always did expose me to the realities of what it means to be black in America. Um, and, it, and I think... More so than trying to humanize black people for people on the outside, mm -hmm. it was really meant to be a testimony to the fact that we are human beings. We are more than just our struggle. We are more than just our anger and our frustration at these situations. And it's really our love for each other that inspires us mm -hmm. to fight so hard for what's right. And so we wanted to just really do justice to how complex we actually are and allow people who are living through this to be able to see something that actually reflects who they are. Mm -hmm. yeah. After I spoke with Damon and Sabah, they hooked me up with Brittany, who I met on my trip to St. Louis. We'll hear that conversation in a bit. But after I left St. Louis, tensions stemming from the impending Stockley verdict were rising. The next week, Brittany wrote an op-ed for the St. Louis American describing her situation just before the announcement of the Stockley acquittal. And she really articulates the position she has been put in as an activist. I wanted to actually read an excerpt she wrote. She says, We were trapped on the parking lot and brutally arrested, zip-tied, and made to sit on the hot pavement for what felt like hours before sitting on a bus without air conditioning for hours more. One man attempting to leave the highway was slammed to the ground, resulting in a concussion that went untreated on that August day. Everyone was arrested, including Alexis, that's her fiancé, and me, as I had warned participants they would be. I cried angrily and loudly at the circumstances. For us, it felt like lose-lose. We don't protest, we lose. We do protest, we're criminalized, and we lose. And later she writes, Though I am not a convicted felon, I have been largely silenced by the state since the highway shut down. I'm serving probation of anywhere from two to five years, and any arrest could be a violation, again landing my fate and my family's in the hands of the court. So basically she's put in this position where she wants to serve her community, she wants to fight, but she literally um, has so much to lose yeah. Yeah. For, for doing so. Absolutely, and she can get, again, like she said, criminalized, right? Criminalized for speaking out for fighting for her life, fighting for her safety, fighting for her humanity, fighting for her family. Like, that will cause mental distress. You know, the trauma behind activism isn't discussed enough, and I think this is a key example that points to the consequences of what it means to speak out. Yeah, sometimes we forget the consequences of activism, you know, the consequences that go far beyond the tear gas and the rest. When the cops are gone and the news cameras are dispersed and the real everyday ramifications of fighting systems of oppression come up. And to me, that's really one of the lasting narratives from Ferguson and St. Louis County today. After the break, my interview with Brittany Farrell. Plus, I follow a woman known in the community as Mama Cat while she makes her rounds feeding the needy. Stay with us. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Before we get back to the show, have you found I'm Still Here on Apple Podcasts? If you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, or tell a friend. Or you can send us an email, stillhere at huffpost.com. Okay, now back to the show. So I met with Brittany Farrell in St. Louis, where we had a conversation about her activism, as well as her identity as a queer Black woman, a mother, an organizer, and a healer. Before we started recording, Brittany told me about how her activism led to her being essentially blacklisted in the hospital she worked at as a nurse after she was arrested for protesting in 2015. And I want to be good at what I do. Right. You know, I want to be good at what I do. It's not just a job for me. You know, I really take um, maternal fetal health, especially for black folks, very seriously. And I'm there to learn from people who don't want me there necessarily. And it does get exhausting. It gets really, really exhausting to always feel stressed about everything other than the work, you know? So in existing in these institutions means that I have to kind of play the game, right? Um, but my biggest thing has been doing that while also sustaining and organizing grassroots power. So knowing that I'm committed to keeping black people well and healing black folks and organizing black folks, I'm trying to figure out how to merge how the do, two. Yeah. Yeah. How do I merge the two not sacrificing, you know, Your, um, mm-hmm, principles, right. values, which has been a little tricky because where I'm at now, I've already been put on administrative leave once where I'm at. And that happened in 2015. Okay. And it was done illegally. And within a several days, I would say maybe a little over a week or two, maybe, I can't remember, they sent me a letter to my home and told me I had like a set number of days to respond to come back to work. Otherwise, I would be having voluntarily gave up my position. Just a lot of, you know, BS. Um, So I went back and when I went back, the floor that I was on, it was on a medical oncology floor. They filled my position. They told me that they didn't have a need So then they started to float me all over the hospital, right? So I'm in units that I have no experience in, like telemetry. And I'm like, I don't know how to read strips. And, you know, so I mean, to them, it was a strategy to... To, like, like demoralize you and just to make you leave. Yeah, And to hopefully no one else see value in, in what I bring to that institution. So what happened was I ended up applying for RN position on a different floor. And it's when I applied to that position that I found out why I was kind of blacklisted from the unit I was on before as a nurse intern. And during my interview, the supervisor who was doing the interview asked me what happened on my last floor. And, you know, it was one of those things where I was completely honest. I'm like, honestly, I don't know. I was put on administrative leave. I was brought back. My position was filled. No one told me why. She was like, well, I went and I talked to the woman, the manager who up there, and she said, apparently you were making people uncomfortable. And I was like, well, I don't talk to people at work, barely. Right. But if I do, it's about work, right? right. So my presence and them just, learning. Just you existing mm-hmm. in that space. Me existing. And them, I guess, doing their own research to try to figure out who I am made them uncomfortable. That's their problem and not mine, right? So I was so shocked, but I was also in the middle of an interview. So I didn't want to to let her know that I was shocked. But I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I had no idea. That's good to know. Note it, right? (laughs) So then um, she hired me for that position. She was low-key a supporter of everything you know that was going on so I would see that same supervisor now she has been promoted to like a director these are the people in positions of power and that is an example of how they do people like me Mm -hmm. who challenge and push back against that power you silently blacklist me from certain spaces in hopes that other people will do the same thing you know but you have no legal backing to do that you didn't expect for me to show up to the hospital with my attorney. You didn't expect for me to be prepared. You thought that you could do that to me, you know? Yeah. So now where I'm at, it's a little, you know, most of the women I work with are married to police officers oh, or they have spouses that are in the military or they're just white and uncomfortable. Is there tension? 
I wouldn't say there's tension, but it's definitely for me. And I don't know if this is me projecting or not. Uh-huh. Um, there's definitely like the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I mostly exhaust myself not by doing my job, which is like stressful enough. I mostly exhaust myself knowing that I can't really afford to make a mistake where I'm at right now. Let's let's go back a little bit because I do want to talk about how you found yourself in the in the world of activism and, and organizing and and I don't want to talk too much about Ferguson necessarily, but I do want to talk about what the catalyst was for you and how you got involved in the movement. I grew up being a black girl who questioned the condition of black folks in America. I grew up loving black people. I, you know, that's just how I grew up. Um, when I came of age and I was an undergrad and this was after years of really difficult times, you know, barely making ends meet and being a single mom, being a teen mom, you know, having relationships with black men that would often have me questioning like why, you know, there was lots of whys and really paying attention to black family dynamics. And, you know, even though going through the struggle, but still coming out on the other end asking, okay, so what can I do to not just learn a little bit more about the why, but also to help, to also um, organize other black folks who might be in my position to to want to do something that serves the greater good of black people. Um, I had become the vice president and then the president of the what was known as the Black Student Nurses Organization. And what I decided to do in my position there is to use my leadership and the resources that I did have available to me to organize events and programming around black health, um, health uh, folks who suffer from the greatest health disparities um, or, yeah, and... What they look like is like a week long of activities talking about sexual health, um, nutritional health, mental health. Yeah. And really kind of bringing it full circle, you know, not just educating, not just educating students, but also teachers and people from the community who chose to come on campus to engage and understanding that a lot of times incentives had to be offered to get people to engage, you know, so collecting resources to help make that happen, doing the marketing for it and going out into the community and trying to let people know about it. It started there. That seed was planted in undergrad where I was given a little bit of power, right, as a student, as a leader, student leader. And I was given a little bit of resources and trying to figure out how to make it stretch for us. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time, Ferguson happened. Mike Brown was murdered. And my activism just shifted from uh, health and food justice to, you know, Ferguson. And so it initially started with me um, meeting up at a black woman house who lives here. She's a small business owner of Bell Butters, Tasha Burton. She put out a call for people to come help make lunch sacks or um, like donations for batteries for phones and you know all types of stuff so I saw it and I responded I said I can come help went to her house with uh, several other folks who were there now we did for like the morning is make sandwiches um, fruit snacks and put them all in a bag get tons of water and this was happening with funds that were raised by an organization called Operation Helper Hush mm-hmm. So it started with me going out, helping feed people. And then me going out to help feed people led to me spending like long days and nights out on the street. And then from there, I met a bunch of folks. We all had this common interest of making sure that this movement that we see being created out of Ferguson mm-hmm. is not a replicate of the civil rights movement where you have a whole spectrum of black folks and only a few being heard or a few being seen. Mm-hmm. Really wanting, wanting to center women and queer folks and young people. Um, so then that led to us forming Mao, right? And then with Mao, it's it led to us um, doing like mass civil disobedience and mobilizing people for direct action. And it just kind of went from there, you know? Very organic. Yeah, okay. Very, very organic. And... 
I never really, I guess, reflected on the impact that that had on St. Louis. You know, I never really reflected up until, you know, a little before these last few months, how um, mass mobilization and civil disobedience has helped really continue the resistance in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. because I was also able to see what happened after it stopped. What I, I guess I'm interested in knowing, like, what your relationship was with the media during that time specifically, because especially because, you know, I, I assume you were being filmed for the documentary, um, but there were also like, you know, international media outlets there, local media outlets there. So how did you relate to them? How did you feel about their presence there? I think they have a story to tell, right? So a lot of times I feel like the media comes into these uh, situations where things are chaotic, things are... Um, very unnerving and just disorganized for the people that it impacts. Strip those people of their humanity and see them as a story, right? And I've, I've, I grew up in a household where you don't trust the media, don't trust what you see on TV. Like that was just one of those narratives, like my grandma said it, my mom said it. Don't believe what you see on TV, the media lies, you know? I know in my family, the media lies was really a shortcut to say white people lie. Yeah, exactly, that's exactly what it was. Um, So I already grew up knowing that, right? But to have this lived experience where you watch the media come in like vultures to tell a story, don't tell it right, and then also knowing that their best interests will always be on the side of the institutions and the systems Mm -hmm. that keeps, you know, oppressive forces what they are, um, you begin to really see that no one really cares about us. No one really cares about telling our story. No one really cares about humanizing us, whether you are uh, experiencing grief and turmoil from the result of a police officer killing another black person or whether you're experiencing a natural disaster. You know, at the end of the day, uh, I think the media has a way of wanting to um, figure out what's going to be the next hot thing, mm-hmm. what's going to get the next, you know, highest ratings, and also how do we, um, I guess, haphazardly display black pain, black rage, mm-hmm. you know, and they do it in a way that does not explore any of the context that lies behind it, um, whether it's like directly before this catastrophic event or historically, mm-hmm. you know? And so my relationship with the media during that time was I saw them for who they were. And a lot of times I was always very skeptical of what they wanted and even sometimes being aggressive about, you know, don't share this without me reviewing it first or, you know, because that's what you have to do because... You know, a lot of times we think that, and sometimes it's true, that we need media to get the story out there. Mm -hmm. But because of how media works, we also need our hands on it to make sure that the context and the the content is accurate. Mm -hmm. It tells the truth. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, never really trusted fully, but understanding the significance of them being there. It's it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. You could have turned it on any channel and gotten the perspective of the police. You could not have done the same thing and have gotten an honest perspective of the people who lived and were impacted by the police occupation and the assault with chemical weapons, physical assault even, that took place in Ferguson. What space, what platform do we ever have to tell our own stories? There isn't one, right? So... When people say that, to me, it's them asking for something to really uh, nurture and soothe that part in them that does not want to accept that these black people have gained the platform to tell their own story and it really conflicts and contradicts everything that I ever knew about what happened in Ferguson or everything that I ever knew about how black people show up in black communities. Or even 
how militarized the police actually are. You know, I think that that is a problem that white folks who ask that question need to sort through. Mm -hmm. And I also think because you do have some folks of color that want to play devil's advocate, whatever that means, and ask that question, it's I think it's a lot of work that you need to do to understand that no matter how you twist this, no matter how you want to flip it around and look at it, that there is a lack of agency that black people have to tell their own story. And we have to not be complicit in accepting things that mass media and the institutions that back it want to spoon feed people to continue this narrative that any act of violence that's committed upon black people by the same systems that are expected to protect and serve are done because black people did something to deserve it, despite the loss of life, despite the grief. You know, they want to continue to reinforce that because if they can do that, it then validates every Every other other thing thing that has happened before that and it continues to validate everything that happens after. And for black people to gain control over their narrative, it challenges that, you know? And um, oftentimes I, I wonder what would have happened had a story like this been told about people in the Holocaust, right? You know, it would be honored, it would be sacred, it would be, you know, something that people hold on to because it's a part of their history, right? But it's this blackness, it's this pushback against everything that you ever thought about, black pain, black rage, black grief, black people having agency that, that challenges how you feel about our worth, you know? We're not seeking that from white folks, but this is the type of feeling that it's eliciting in people, right? What is it like to see, like, one day President Obama sign something that demilitarizes the police, and then, like, a few years later, we have this person in the White House, and now they're signing orders that are remilitarizing the police. And it feels as though, and, like, even this person's election feels like another like huge hurdle that we have to overcome. Do you ever feel a sense of like, how much more do we have to fight? Like how much more do we have to to, to explain what what's happening for this not to be the reality of what we're going through? Yeah, I think about that often and how white people continue to fight aggressively to keep what's theirs, right? What they've created for themselves intact. Um, Framing it like that doesn't surprise me of where we're at right now in America. I was listening to one of um, my comrades and friend, Justin Hansford. Justin Hansford. He's an attorney um, and professor at Howard. So he explained it through this lens of critical race theory and how we can have so much time where we make what people see as progress and these small wins and then which with each like small win each length of progress there's this shift that happens where we go back Mm -hmm. like a hundred steps and people take positions of power that then wipe it away so we feel like we have to you know, start it over or we feel like no real progress has been made. There's this undoing of any small steps that can potentially lead to equity or equality or, you know, um, black folks feeling like we're going to be able to um, live free of militarized cops rolling through our neighborhood or, you know, He explained it through that way of critical race theory that helped me think about it in a way that makes a little bit more sense for me. It's about, for me, when I think about it, it's like the election, I think is to be expected. Um, I think that it only made sense for them to put a white supremacist in office, um, seeing 
as to how grassroots power was beginning to take platform. And um, I think that what that means for us is that we have to continue to do the work of organizing ourselves, Mm -hmm. political education, Mm -hmm. um, really rallying up collectively to push back against everything that this administration is coming out with to keep us in our place, right? Um, And I think that it's easy for us to feel defeated during these moments, but I don't want us to lose sight of this is the work. Like this, Ferguson was only the beginning. This is the work right here. They were never gonna let us win. You know, they were never gonna let us make that much um, of a shift in this country without them coming back 10 times harder. This idea of doing the work kept coming up in every conversation I had. And I think so often when we talk about Ferguson and what happened to Mike Brown, we're talking about the protests and the marches and the stuff we saw on our television screens. But like Brittany said, what happened in Ferguson was only the beginning. Or the middle, rather. I mean, none of this was particularly new, right? And neither are the tactics that people in the community are using to survive and fight back every single day. I mean, if you look back at, you know, the ways that we've been able to mobilize and organize, you know, the tools that we use may be different, but the methods are always the same, right? And activism doesn't just mean physically going out on the streets and protesting. Right. And one person I met in St. Louis was Kathy Daniels out there. Everyone knows her as Mama Cat. And Mama Cat lives and breathes doing the work, working with her team, who she calls the pot bangers, to bring home cooked food to the needy. I followed Mama Cat and her team around the city in a caravan of cars as she distributed 100 meals to the homeless, meals that she cooked that day. There's some cold tea over there. The right. tea is still cold. Right. right. And, uh... Yeah. You, I'll talk to you before you go. All right, babe. I'll holler at you. I'm going to get up on this thing if I can climb up here. <laughs> get my butt up here. My name is uh, actually Kathy Daniels. Um, everybody calls me Mama Cat. Hail from Harlem. Grew up mostly in the Bronx. I represent the Universal Zulu Nation. I'm a Zulu queen. Hip-hop is my culture. Can't, won't, don't stop, right? <laughs> I'm a Navy wife retired. And I raised two sailors. So they followed my husband. Um, and then my grandson followed his mother. So three generations of service to this country. And I just feel like if... My family was so selflessly ready to die for this country. This country owes us a little bit more, and we're not getting it. So I'm going to take care of my people. What we do is just love on the community, right? And see, during the uprising, um, it was a young man two days before Christmas 2014 that was killed by the Berkeley police. His name was Antonio Martin. Um, I think that's when we first got involved in helping family raise money for funeral expenses. And um, my team, we cook and we do repasts. I can't even tell you how since then how many repasts we've done. I'm getting ready for one on Saturday night. And this one is uh, a trans person. Kiwi. Kiwi. Um, and I was with Kiwi family until almost midnight last night, um, sitting there. You know, with Kiwi spouse and uh, sister-in-law and all of them. And it's like, they said the first time you came, treated you like a guest, now you family. Go get your own food. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. It's like that now, you know, but beautiful people. Mm-hmm. So we're going to give the best. Like, I wanna, I made the centerpieces myself. And I've been doing this um, almost from the time we started on the streets of Ferguson. That's where I started feeding people in St. Louis. I was in college when uh, Michael Brown was murdered. Um, 4.0 GPA, top of the class. And um, this happened, I got involved, but stayed on my studies because I graduated at the top of the class. So, booyah. Uh, I asked them what can I do for them. They said a little home-cooked meal wouldn't hurt nothing. 
So I went home, came, next day I came back with spaghetti and salad and, and garlic bread. But after that, every day I fed them. Every day. Get out of school. During the uprising. Right. And every day I get out of school and I put food on. Me and my grandson do our homework. And then, you know, we, when the food is ready, pack it up, hit the street. We had dinner 6 o'clock every night on West Florida and at them tents. And then we would march at 7. Wow. When nobody was there but us. Right? But we kept going. People eventually started coming back out. But it was a small group of people that stayed over by the Ferguson PD, too. But eventually we all just came to one place over there. And I would just feed everybody. So it was you literally cooking all the food, preparing all the food, and bringing it to Absolutely. People. I'm what you would consider part of the Ferguson front line. Because I'll get out there and bang with the best of them. But at the same time, when this car pulled up, this is a protest car, by the way. This is Miss Pearl. Oh, Miss okay. Pearl, Miss Pearl, you see pictures on Google. You see Miss Pearl in the pictures, right? <laughs> and um, I'll pull up in my car just like all the seats are laid down. We're going to lay it down to fill it up with food. We got stuff for tear gas. We got stuff for pepper spray. Just like... The situation, current situation, we don't know what's going to happen with this verdict, you know, so we got to be ready. But I love cooking. I think when you feed the body, you feed the spirit. You know, if you let people know that you care, it'll make a difference between them wanting to live or die. Breaking bread means you break down walls. You sit down and some of the greatest things ever happened over a meal. So, you know, when you talk about black lives, black lives matter, right? 95% out here is black, right? These are our family. These are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews. It's our people. So when we say black lives matter, we need to know that we need to include every last one. So. I wanted you to talk a little bit about how you feel that Ferguson and St. Louis has changed since everything that went down during the protests. Mm. So, change in St. Louis. If I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't really see much good change like that. Like For a while they stopped harassing people on the highways and byways, but now they back. It's like coming back up. Mm, no, not coming back. They back. Oh. Every time you turn around, they got somebody pulled over. I mean, we saw just today three different people being pulled over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they have stopped all that harassing people, but they back to it. Mm-hmm. You got 90 municipalities in St. Louis. 90. So you can get pulled over right here, and they are going to give you a ticket. Then you get right over there, because that's another municipality. You're going to get another ticket. And how many tickets can you rack up by the time you get home? It makes no sense. So it's not real change, because they're doing stuff. We had to fight for 15 They got $10 out of it. Now they took it back. Yeah. What's the change in that? It's, it's a new day. Mm-hmm. Same stuff. Right. So I don't see it. I don't see a change. So we still got to fight on. And what does the what does the fight look like for you? What does survival look like for you? Survival is I got to take everybody with me. I can't go by myself. Like my people still sitting there, like hurting. Like, how do we get all of these people free? So this is where Ferguson is at. Maybe this weird in between state where we're trying to move forward, make a change, but stuck in the same system of oppression that we're fighting. The fact of the matter is, Ferguson is a microcosm of this country. Ferguson is everywhere, and survival there as a Black person is the same as survival all over the United States. One step forward, two steps back. Some of us are still here and taken to the streets, even. There was a Black trans woman, Kiwi, who was murdered last week. And... um, the complexities around that where certain folks erasing the fact that she was trans or misgendering her. Um, but the work nonetheless is still taking place, you know, in the streets, bailing her partner out of jail. They arrested her partner 
when she was murdered. And there was a call put out to the circuit attorney to um, release her, you know. Kayla and Action Council and RTD rallied around that. That's doing the word, right? No one's talking about it. No one's writing about it. These are the issues that exist when people are gone. This is the work that has to continue when people are gone. The political education around what it means to be black and to be trans, especially a trans woman, when, you know, trans women are being killed and no one wants to talk about it. What it means to educate folks about pronouns and identity. And, you know, it's so much work, right? So this enough for everyone to do. So the work starts like now. It started months ago when, when the cameras left, when people stopped paying attention, when there was no riot porn for people, when there was no, um, nothing to be sensationalized in the media. Like people are still working and yeah, it's enough work to go around, right? I'm Still Here is a HuffPost podcast produced and edited by Nick Offenberg and Jessica Samacow. This story was reported by me, Ziba Blay, and our field producer was Nick Offenberg. Special thanks to our photographer for this story, Michael Thomas. Also to the Urban League of Metropolitan St. Louis and the folks at the Ferguson Community Empowerment Center. And to the filmmakers of Who Streets, which is now available on demand. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Amazon. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, or send us an email. Tell us your story of survival. Still here at HuffPost.com. On the next episode of I'm Still Here. I didn't know anything about them. Doctors were prescribing these to a lot of gentlemen who were injured in the mines, in the coal mines, and the doctors wouldn't explain to them the risks. It grabbed a hold of people quick, fast, and in a hurry. These doctors were giving them out like candy and wasn't passing on the information to their patients. 